Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This week we're going to be speaking to Nick Estes. Nick is an indigenous scholar, activist and assistant professor of American studies at the uh, University of New Mexico. His research engages colonialism, global indigenous histories, decolonization, oral history, US imperialism. You liked him a lot, didn't you, Jen? Yeah, I thought it was great. You worried about the audio quality because of the kids? No, it's um, it'll be fine. It's, yeah, it's great. like um, atmosphere in a coffee shop or something. It's like really atmospheric. I've got a German shepherd at my feet. He wants a bit of my banana, literally a banana. Um, there are kids everywhere. Now tell me, what did you think of the charisma and chemistry between me and Nick Estes? <laughs> I did not notice it. Come on. <laughs> Why do you think it was you electrifying? You? I don't know. What do you... <laughs> you got me a cup there for a second. Do you think maybe? Could he have done? Maybe. How you been this week? Banter decanter. What have I you brought been up my to? sunglasses. Where's them? Okay. Well, I need to keep talking. Why did you paint that chair black? I know how radio works, Jen. Don't worry about me. I've been in this medium 20 years, love. Hold on. Hold on. Well, they look actually amazing. Yeah, I know, aren't they? Can you come around? There's a bit of reflection. Oh, yeah, they're nice. How much? You're not even prepared to say it out loud. No. Mime it to me. No. 200 I'm not, quid? I'm not ever going to say 300 it. quid? I'm never going to say. You, you, can, you, can, say, you can say a million pounds and I wouldn't say. I know how much. What are their brand? What are they brand? What's the brand? <laughs> what are they brand? Chuck. Chuck. <laughs> 500 quid sunglasses? Well, there's people starving. Yeah, but I haven't bought sunglasses in three years, so. You better not lose. Jen, it must be so much pressure. What do you, every time you put them down, what do you do? do you I put, cherish them. You cherish them. I, I cherish them. Do you touch the lenses with your no. let's face it, spindly, grimy no. little grease, greasy little fingers, like the thin fingers of a thin pig. It's like the last time I got a pair in LA. I thought about it for a long time. Then I had that crystal healing session you gave me, and I went and bought them because I felt so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. Sometimes I feel spiritually elevated, and the only way I can express myself is by purchasing something. But now I only have two pairs, so it's not like I'm excessive. Just down to yeah, that's okay. Look, let's face it, sunglasses are a luxury item, and a lot of people spend a lot of money on them. Don't feel guilty. Have you been on any Trotsky dates? No, but I matched with another person on a dating app. Who is it? <laughs> you won't approve. M or F? Not another one of those ones where it's like have it off with a married man. <laughs> no, he's not married. Well, what is it then? Why it's won't a, I approve? Because it's not for anything meaningful. Oh, Jim, what? If you put into your data, I don't want any meaning. <laughs> yeah. You've put a, di- a nihilist dating I've got too app. much emotion in my mind already. It's a really interesting approach. Now, Carly <laughs> the dog's in here. We're getting some interesting visits today. Hello, little dog. All right, well, look, that constitutes some banter when I was ridiculing you. That was from the banter to canter. Time now for the comments. Now time for comments. From the Yoga with Adrian episode. Natasha Edwards Holistic Therapy. Love, love, love this woman. She's got me through a lot this lockdown for amazing online classes. Jaseel Craig. Oh, sweet Adrian. <laughs> She's been there for me in more ways than she could ever imagine. Jesse, that sounds absurd. Her yoga is by far the most spiritual and out of this world relaxing. I've literally fallen asleep. What a treat to see her speaking with you, Russell. Well, I loved her as well. Kesmic. I love Adrian. I've so far managed yoga every day this year due to her monthly calendars and inspiration. The improvements in body and mind are amazing. She takes her work seriously, but doesn't take herself too seriously. Oh, her work seriously. I definitely feel the yoga now instead of doing it. I've found out what feels good. Well, that's what more could you want from a teacher? 
agree with those comments? Yeah. Yeah. What? You're going to keep the sunglasses on now? Uh, the world looks so good right now. What's it like, orange? It's kind of golden tint. Well, guess have a go. Give me a go of them. No, your head's bigger. I'm not, oh, you're <laughs> so precious. Did you get brand new? My head's not wider. No, because even in the shop, you fixed them to fit my head properly. Oh, God. These glasses, they're like your new partner. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you marry the glasses? I would if I could. Why don't you put, go on a dating app and just get yourself a 10 grand pair of sunglasses? I didn't mention it on the dating app. Well, your new sunglasses? Yeah. <laughs> What's this app you're on? I'm not telling you. Is it one you pay for or not? No, I would never pay for that. <laughs> but you're willing to be a bit on the a bit of fluff on the side. Okay, time now for listener shout out. Listener shout outs. Andy Chapman in New Zealand says, "Every Tuesday I clean our house while listening to your show. If you ever wonder what your audience is doing while listening, well, now you know. I do wonder, but I like to think they're sitting quietly, perfectly still, absorbing every word." I'm wiping the toilet thinking about how when you get to heaven you'll find out Jenny's actually the Messiah. Well, that'd be very unlikely. Maybe in the other place. And you're going to have to ask very nicely to be let in. Anyway, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on education. Yep, I'm into Waldorf. If there's going to be change in the world... Why are you laughing at me saying Waldorf? If there's going to be change in the world, I think it will start with teaching children and adult, adults differently. Well, there's a lot of sense in what you're saying there, Andy. It's, it's difficult to argue with that. Hey, listen, guys, I'm live. I'm going to be doing live dates, so keep watching out. If you're not a member of my mailing list over at russellbrand.com, get on it now because I'm going to be announcing some live tour dates very, very soon. So watch out for that announcement. Okay, let's have a listen to Nick Estes, educator, and as Jen would have it, flirt. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Nick Estes, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast, Under the Skin. Thanks for having me. Do you know that we um, we used uh, an article you wrote as the basis of a video on my YouTube channel like a, a, a week ago? Uh, I feel like it's... Yeah, we released it like a couple of days ago. But um, I, read your, I read your article and I, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed uh, learning from someone who come from a place of a kind of ethical certainty from a tr- from a from a tradition and I, I so thanks for writing that and um I I wonder I wonder how you feel the kind of these kind of integrated uh, systems that were once thought of as just I don't know folk mythology and folk awareness no matter where they're geographically discovered there appear to be certain correlatives connection to land totemism a sense of the sacred i wonder if you feel that these ideas are going to be useful if we are to oppose the uh, negative effects of the kind of advances we're experiencing currently i mean the short answer is yes (laughs) but I think it's uh, in my work, I'm a historian uh, by trade. And in my work, I really look historically at how we ended up here, how, you know, that we ended up with, uh, you know, anthropogenic climate change um, and how capitalism specifically as a system 
has destroyed, as you called it, you know, folk ways um, or other ways of being or other alternatives to it. And here in the United States, or what is now the United States in North America, I would say that indigenous people, you know, I'm Lakota, I'm from uh, the, the Lakota people, my tribe is the Lower Burusu tribe. Um, but what indigenous people demonstrate, I think, especially in a place like North America, is that capitalism as a system uh, that's, you know, organized on the profit motive and the commodification of nature and people is not inevitable in social evolution or social development and cultures. And so the article that you mentioned on Bill Gates was really a rebuttal to um, this kind of idea of like great men of history or wealthy, wealthy men as thought leaders um, in, in our culture, uh, in our global culture, and really looking at like the inequality um, of that kind of relationship and especially somebody like Bill Gates uh, but for my purposes, you know, from where I'm from, as I as I point out in that article, somebody like a, a media mogul like Ted Turner owns 200,000 acres of our treaty territory. And it raises the question, why does a single man own more land than an entire nation? You know, and why does a single person uh, own, you know, or have more GDP, so to speak, than, mo than many countries in the world? Um, and I think what I was trying to demonstrate in that piece and thinking about how inequality and global capitalism play into climate change, you know, you can, you can name a hundred corporations, a hundred companies um, that are most responsible for 70% of carbon emissions. You know, these people have addresses, they have homes, you know, um, and you can, you can, you can, um, narrow it down to a sort of ruling class ideology. And these people play an outsized role in determining the future of the planet and, you know, land use patterns. And so that's really, you know, as somebody who's both a historian, but also somebody engaged in the climate justice movement, that's something that I, I really think a lot about. And in terms of, you know, do people think that they have the power to change this certain you know global reality we only have 30 years like there's there's literally a time clock on this that's not something that we can debate and come to terms with but also we can identify that there are distinct class you know characters to how we understand not only climate change how we got here but also the solutions and i think somebody like bill gates uh elon musk um you know the richest men in the world play uh you know um, an outsized influence in, in what it means to transition away from fossil fuels, um, but also how we use the land and our relationship with it. And I would say that indigenous knowledge isn't, shouldn't be like considered the solution to climate change. It definitely is a foundation of reestablishing correct relations with uh, what we would call perhaps the natural world, but it can't just fall on us, right? It can't just fall on one group of people and it has to be everyone who, who comes to that table. I was very affected once when I read a article by an activist called, I think his name is Russell Mead, who's also an actor. Yeah, like when, like it really affected my political opinions when he said um, that the, the, 
he said that people from my culture see capitalism and communism as different sides of the same coin both assume uh, that the land ought be commodified that nature is a resource to be utilized and brutalized and it was shown to me by a philosopher a welsh philosopher called brad evans and i thought it was a sort of it was a what I like is in the cultural conversation, these distinctions between sort of centralized statism and centralized capitalism are presented as this, this, this giddying spectra of possibility, when in fact it's just a sort of a singular modality in terms of the important relationship between us as custodians of the planet or, or, or you know, or just people that are on a planet that's seen as a kind of a source of energy and food and stuff. And, I wonder, mate, as a historian, if this is a problem that you attribute to capitalism, whether the problem began with capitalism and the last great wave of influential men and thinkers from the sort of, you know, steel and energy a sort of 100 years ago in your country, if you even consider it your country. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the speech that you're talking about you know, Russell Means is actually from our nation. He's Lakota. He's a very famous uh, leader of the American Indian movement who was very visionary at his time, at his, you know, his, his the time that he was alive in the sense that, you know, he made this larger claim, I think that was very influential to me. And he said, you know, there's one race of nation or one race of people that has never been represented at the United Nations. And that's the red race or the indigenous people of the Americas. The speech that he gave that you're referencing was kind of a rejoinder to um, this sort of left idea that progress is based on simply extraction, right? And it's not to say that all left projects or all socialist projects are fundamentally based on, you know, extractive, you know, technologies and extract, you know, extraction itself. It's to say that like Western society as a colonial society that's that has, you know, invaded. Uh, you know, what Russell Means would consider his nation and his territory, our nation and our territory, uh, did so not because they just like hate Indians, they hate our culture, they hate, you know, our, our religion or whatever. It's because we possessed a commodity that they desired, and that's land, right? And so we became racialized and we became Indians, not because of our culture, not because of our language, not because of our worldview. We became Indians because we had the land, right? And there are all there are all kinds of Indians, right? There's the West Indians, there's the East Indians, right? Um, so this is a this is a, a kind of British uh, Spanish colonial project, um, and so that's that's what he was talking about in this particular in that particular speech, um, and I do think that when we talk about things such as development, you know, it's always especially in in nations of the first world or the global north. We talk about development in terms of consumerism and cons consumption and thinking about, um, you know, social development in terms of what kind of house you have, you know, how, you know, how many cars do you drive? Um, what kind of food do you consume? Right. Whereas that doesn't really get to the fact that, you know, in, a, in the country that I live in, there are extreme disparities that some people don't even have homes. Some people uh, wake up hungry. Some people, you know, don't have the security of, of you know, of safety, of a, of a safe place to see, sleep or um, just the comfort of being amongst people. And so when we think about, I think it's radically reshaping how we understand like 
human social development and, and meeting human needs, such as hunger, housing, you know, just basic notions of safety, that's fundamentally different than saying that to be happy in this world or to live the good life, um, one has to consume. And we understand if that, if that mentality was applied to the rest of the planet, if the rest of the planet developed uh, through the carbon consumption, through the material consumption, the way that the United States has developed, we'd actually need three planets, right? <laughs> um, for to, to facilitate that level of consumption. So thinking about development in, in a radically different way, uh, but also I think where, where what Russell Means was talking about in this particular uh, speech and, you know, his, his kind of life work was thinking about, you know, at his time, I think he made that speech in 1980, he was saying things such as water is life. Um, and that wasn't just an indigenous claim. That wasn't just like, you know, indigenous people have some mystical relation with water. He was saying that you can't, there's only so much you can take out of the ground. There's only so much you can pollute when, you know, it gets to a point where it's like, we all drink from the same well and, you know, we all piss in the same pot. And so when we are, you know, when indigenous people are at the forefront and saying water is life, we're not saying it as a, as a particular claim that, oh, it's us indigenous people who know best and, and need water in some special relationship. It's, it's, we're saying, no, you breathe the same air, you drink the same water and you live on the same land as us. So we are in the struggle. And he actually gave this speech, in fact, in front of a bunch of white farmers, uh, settlers, white settlers who had settled his land and they brought together um, a sort of union called the Black Hills Alliance of, of white ranchers. It was called the Cowboy and Indian Alliance. And they brought together white ranchers and indigenous people to understand that indigenous rights actually fundamentally protect everyone, not only the environment, but also workers' rights, as well as those who uh, till and use the land, uh, whether it's for agriculture or ranching. So that, that was the context of the speech. Oh, thanks for that, because I've always loved that speech, but as an autodidact i seldom spend any time doing anything so radical as researching the things that are shaping and changing my perception i just look at it and that's that i that's a thing i know now it's wonderful to hear that context and um, could there be a more radical and optimistic alliance than a cowboy and indian alliance at this time of social fracturing and fragmentation this time of where conflict is found in almost every area of culture loads of things occurred to me when you were talking then nick and here are a few of them i was struck by the the thing you said about how that you know um you they became indians as a result of their uh, relationship to the land as custodians or proprietors or however you want to see it of the land and that reminded me of the famous baldwin james baldwin idea about the creation of the class uh, classification of negro in order in a sense to sort of cast the shadow of uh, you know, of many of the prejudicial tropes, i.e. over-sexualization, animalism, laziness, and also to justify the brutalization, of course, of, of slavery. I had not seen that connection before, but I couldn't have done because I had it explained to me before. And once uh, Kindy Andrews, he's a sociologist, British black sociologist, who he said that the reason that you can't have restitution and reparation to 
you know, descendants of former slave nations, and presumably this applies to you as the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas, you, because in those reparations is the dismantling of the, the system. You can't maintain those systems post-reparation. And I feel like a sort of a similar thing is being hinted at here, Nick, when you say that the kind of amendments that would be required to uh, halt climate change would mean s such a disruption of the interests of the powerful as to completely reorganize society. That's why it can never happen. So what do you think about the sort of um, the utilization by, let's call it the political left, uh, of sort of and, and certain corporations of greenwashing and like you know climate change is everywhere it's not like something that people are like let's not talk about that you know anymore you know i mean it's not like that it's discussed but it's not discussed really is it in terms of capitalism so how do you work through all that yeah no i mean that's a that's a really good question and what you're really hinting at is the United States didn't come about by accident, right? These systems didn't come about by accident. And it wasn't just like somebody threw a bunch of ingredients in a bag and like shook it up and then out comes, you know, history. Um, there was a careful, you know, it's like baking a cake. There was careful ingredients that were put into this and slowly baked into it. And one thing that I think, you know, the your friend that you mentioned who, who was talking about if, if reparations, you know, were actually implemented, you know, it would undo these systems. And I, I, I like to put it in, in terms of like, you can't unbake, you know, that cake. Once it's baked, it's baked. And, but it doesn't mean that alternatives can't exist or don't exist, right? Mm. Uh, and I would say, um, you know, to get, I'm, I'm gonna kind of wind my way to answer this question because I think it's important to point this, this out. We shouldn't romanticize indigenous people, you know, because we are historic, we are shaped by history. Um, you know, there are indigenous, you know, to give you an example at the time, uh, you know, before Deb Holland, she's, you know, she was just appointed to a cabinet level position in uh, Biden's administration. She's an indigenous woman um, from actually from New Mexico, where I'm, I'm speaking to you from uh, very progressive in, in many respects. Um, but, you know, she was she was one of six Congress people, indigenous Congress people in the United States. And of, you know, of the three of the six, three of them were hardcore Trump supporters, right? So it's not to say that indigenous people are always aligning with progressive, you know, uh, values or that identity is somehow some kind of marker of, of good politics or good, you know, good relations. It, it's not that way. Like the system, you know, produces, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, a disparate kind of class structure and indigenous people aren't immune from that. So I just want to point that out right away. Um, but in general, the experience of indigenous people in this nation is such that we are at the bottom rungs of all socioeconomic factors, whether it's, you know, police violence, incarceration, poverty, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, but what makes, you know, sort of our colonization and our subjugation uh, particular unique, particularly unique in, in a context of the United States is that our cultures and our social systems and our values developed around a, a material reality of, you know, this, of this land, we learned how to live it, live on it, we learned how to cultivate it, 80% of indigenous uh, cultures in the Western Hemisphere were agricultural. And so it, it begins to like, you know, you know, it should raise questions in your mind, 
when you think of my people, Lakota people, you think of people who are, you know, riding bareback, you know, bare chested, killing buffaloes, like living free, like very masculine and, and macho. But we don't think of us as like cultivators, as people who actually grew corn, who had large, you know, fields of corn, who were very sedentary in many ways. Um, so there's a lot of stereotypes because how people engage or know uh, indigenous people is not through reading books. It's often through television, right? The cowboy and Indian uh, trope. Um, so that makes, you know, that's why we are sports mascots still to this day in many places. This is why people can play Indian and dress up like Indian uh, because that dehumanization process, you know, um, it, it, works, it works two ways. One, to eliminate indigenous people because if we're just playthings, you know, the killing and our elimination is, is, you know, much easier. It makes the access and the granting of our histories, our bodies, uh, much, much more easier and our, and our lands as well. And so this is a very complicated, you know, we're, we're our primary form of like racialization or how people know us is by thinking that we don't exist anymore. Yeah. So yeah. That's one hand, like, and so there's this, there's this tendency to either romanticize or to, you know, completely disappear without fully understanding, you know, and the other aspect of it is that we developed um, a culture that was non-capitalist, that wasn't based on exploitation, that didn't, you know, were things such as, uh, you know, slavery and, and, you know, I mean, it's not to say that there wasn't prehistoric slavery, I'm sure there was, but those weren't the foundations of society, it wasn't based on coercion, it wasn't based on the commodification of nature. That was something that was fundamentally introduced. They took away that way of life through our material culture and living with the land, you know, just by dispossessing, but we still have, we still retain that knowledge and those cultural practices to this day and that reverence uh, for the land itself and thinking of it as a relative, right? For me as a Lakota person, as a Lakota man, my ultimate goal in life is to be a good relative and to live in correct relations, both to the human and non-human world. And where that gets us to the second part of your questions, and I apologize for, for kind of monologue, monologuing, but sometimes we have to backfill some of that information to, to so that we're, we're on the same page and we can get to the place that we need to go and get to those important conversations. So to kind of get to the, you know, the, the facts of the matter, you know, in 2008, there was a global financial crisis in the United States, there was also what we now know as the, the fracking revolution. Um, fracking technology, you know, uh, was kind of uh, being implemented. It was a way, it was hydraulic fracturing. It was a way to get at previously inaccessible or expensive forms of oil and gas in the Earth's crust. Um, and so these two things coincided, a global financial collapse as well, as well as a fracking revolution. Under Obama's administration, he implemented you know, uh, what he called the all of the above energy policy or American, or American energy independence. And this meant increased uh, domestic oil production so that the United States could wean itself off of, you know, foreign oil, especially like in places like, you know, Iran or, or Venezuela and began implementing harsher sanctions against those countries as a result. And this is something that we talk about as indigenous people. We, we understand geopolitics. We understand why they're coming after our land and why they're coming after our resources. And so this began the fracking revolution and domestic energy production or domestic oil and gas production in the United States under Obama increased 88%, right? And you also have the creation of the tar sands in, in Alberta, Canada, 
which has created a dead zone larger than the state of Florida. I don't know if that means anything, anything to your listeners, but it's a, it's a huge area of, of land that has been completely destroyed. They built walls around it um, to, to essentially extract this very dirty oil. And the Canadian government you know, subsidize a lot of these projects, a lot of these Canadian corporations. Canada is often seen as, you know, the nice alternative to the United States, but Canada is also home to 60% of the world's mining corporations that plunder the rest of the planet, you know, including <laughs> my, my homelands uh, where I'm from. And so they, you know, they, they put through pipelines such as the Keystone XL pipeline. And so this is where the, the fight against the pipelines erupts. This is where the Dakota Access Pipeline really, you know, really kind of uh, galvanizes indigenous people. It was actually the Keystone XL pipeline for us, but you know, after we, we sort of won the Keystone XL pipeline fight, then we switched to the Dakota Access pipeline fight. And we can talk about that later, but the outcome of that was that under Obama, that, that pipeline you know, was finished uh, and then sort of finalized under Trump. And we often attribute a lot of the kind of bad energy policy and the fossil fuel, the expansion of the fossil, a very aggressive expansion of the fossil fuel economy to somebody like Trump. But in fact, a lot of those uh, policies happened under the Obama administration. So for us, you know, we're in this kind of trap of like Democrats and Republicans when, when basically it's kind of the same wing of the, of a, you know, the same kind of bird. And so it's it's a little bit difficult, even though we'd prefer you know to have uh, to to be colonized less or more kindly in some regards um, than the more aggressive form of of Trump. Whereas Trump, you know, represented something that was very you know it was it was a naked form of colonialism that was like very easy to grasp. You know, he valorized genociders like Andrew Jackson and you know John Wayne and things like that. So that was that was a little bit easier for us. But now now that we have Biden you know, a kind of return of Obama's policy, what we're seeing, and I'm kind of bringing this back to the, the question you were talking about a green transition, what we're seeing in, under the Biden administration is another kind of energy boom and another kind of energy rush. And, you know, this happened also under, it also began under Obama and was very much um, aggressively expanded in, un, under Trump. But Biden, you know, with his $2 trillion uh, green transition plan, you know, he, he commits to transitioning the entire federal fleet, all the cars that the federal government owns into electric vehicles. That requires an immense amount of metal, such as copper, right? And things such as lithium. Where are these things going to come from? Right now, China is like the number one producer of uh, of copper and lithium. And think the thing with copper and why it's so important is that you can't the the kind of copper that's needed in renewable technologies like electric vehicles, wind turbines, solar panels has to be very pure. It has to be uh, mined and, and it has to be mined. It can't be recycled. So it has to come from somewhere, right? And so, you know, Biden gave this kind of speech. Um, during his campaign, and it wasn't a public speech, but he gave a speech to um, one of the largest mining associations in the United States, basically saying, we're at a dawn of a new era of mining. Um, and just like, you know, the Obama administration wanted to increase domestic oil production to wean ourselves off of uh, foreign imports, we as the United States want to also increase our production and extraction of what we, what we are calling strategic minerals. Um, and that includes lithium, right? That includes uh, copper. 
And so under, under the Obama administration, there was um, this rider to the, the National Defense Reauthorization Act. And I'm sorry if these like, this is a little bit boring because it, it kind of gets into the weeds a little bit about this stuff, but there was the rider to this, the National Defense Reauthorization Act back in 2012 or 2003, I can't remember, um, in, in uh, an Arizona congressman or senator named John McCain added it basically to, to sacrifice or to designate an area of national forest or um, an area controlled by the um, um, a national forest in, in Arizona, which is also an Apache sacred site to be opened up for mining, copper mining by a company called Rio Tinto. And the idea was that if this mine um, went forward, it would produce uh, the one fifth of the United States need for copper anticipating this green transition, anticipating this green renewable revolution, right? Um, but still still dedicated to the kind of extraction mentality and the colonial mentality that we're gonna sacrifice. It would be like, I don't know, what's the big church in, in England? St. Paul's Cathedral maybe, or Westminster Abbey. So imagine if um, a, an Australian mining company came in and decided, said, hey, you know, there's a big, huge uh, copper reserve underneath <laughs> this cathedral, and we're going to have to blow a, you know, a hole in it that's going to go down at least or almost two or one and a half miles or uh, over a kilometer down into the earth. And we're going to have to destroy the entire you know, uh, land around it. Um, we can't compensate, can't compensate you for it. We're just going to do it, right? Um, imagine how pissed off people would be. I mean, there there would be like, you know, I'm sure there'd be riots in the streets or something like that. People would be very upset because you're attacking an, an area that's considered a sacred site, a church, you know, a place of reverence. I'm not, a, I'm not a Christian, but that's what I imagine Christians do. I think they go there and they, you know, they pray to the God. Um, but that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you ride roughshod over my culture. That's my sacred heritage. <laughs> they eat like waffers, right? And they eat like they drink. <laughs> yeah, we have waffers. Yeah, we got some waffers in there. Uh, I mean, it does make it seem particularly offensive that that would be somehow framed as a Green New Deal. If part of the Green New Deal is the blow up sacred sites of the indigenous people of the land. I mean, listening to you describe and explain that, Nick, it's difficult to feel optimistic about the Democratic Party, Biden, or much of the rhetoric around climate change, climate concern. And also, may I add to that, the kind of gestural cultural compensations that are offered in the realm of diversity surely if there was any respect at all the, f the meaning like you know respect as long as the respect doesn't affect our economic interests gestures as long as those gestures don't impede the ability of powerful people to p continue to pursue their interests for me like this makes like when it comes down to it, at least Donald Trump, as you said, naked, you know what you're dealing with, you know what you're dealing with, this is what capitalism is, this is what capitalism looks like. And it makes me feel that much of the left's sort of convulsions and hysteria around Trump was an inability to face up to the reality of the political and economic systems that were uh, have been at work, you know, you tell me you're a historian, uh, in your country for, you know, a couple of centuries. It makes me feel like, you know, like I've heard someone, people romanticise about, the, you know, quite recently about the Constitution as a beautiful 
whole document and like i was saying well you know but when they say men what do they mean you know who which men etc these are sort of not necessarily novel arguments but they certainly um uh, arguments under which you can necessarily continue to underwrite the sort of American exceptionalism or presumed uh, rectitude in American social politics. So where where does it leave you as an indigenous man and as a historian when regarding the sort of the the policies of Biden, the rhetoric of Biden and the sort of renewed optimism and um, like the you know a cultural level how how do you see that do you see it as sort of insidious sort of deceptive pointless and where do you put your political optimism? Yeah, no, I mean it's I think you hit the the nail on the head so to speak. Um with that assessment I think there is more of a cynicism and this this is you know there's there's an attack by the right you know there's an attack by the socially conservative to say oh identity politics like you know this representational stuff isn't real and you know there's there's a deep cynicism to that you know but i would also say there's a cynicism from liberals as well to say that once we put a brown face on something that that's okay you know like you know what are we going to do paint mount rushmore like brown like is is that is that the goal like you know it doesn't make the land less stolen or less defaced um it just change it's just a plastic surgery right that's all that's happening and i think that in my mind is much more cynical and much more insidious on the part of um you know not just i mean the democratic party yes but also you know i would say the the republicans play the same game you know with their representational politics and the deployment of identity politics because even the fact, I mean, you brought up the constitution and I think that's incredibly important. Like the, if we want to talk about identity politics, let's talk about the founding of this country uh, on the idea that a, 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 a plantation owning or a land owning class is somehow aggrieved, right? <laughs> like, Cause that's the foundation. If you read the declaration of independence, I think there's 20, 22 or 23 grievances. I can't remember. I should know this as a historian, but whatever, who cares? Um, and the one of the final grievances is talking about, and this says this in the Declaration of Independence, you can go look it up online. Uh, it, it says, um, you know, it's all these, you know, the king did this, the king of England did this and this and this, and he incited uh, domestic uh, rebellions amongst us. And those domestic rebellions, what he was talking about were slave uh, revolts. Uh, and then also he has encouraged, you know, a kind of uh, what he called the merciless Indian savages. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote this, the merciless Indian savages on our Western frontier, whose like only known rule of warfare is to kill everybody, right? Talk about projection, right? So <laughs> <laughs> immediately in that, that founding document, there was it, was, it was almost as if they were laying out, you know, everything that the protesters uh, on January 6th who stormed the Capitol were invoking, they were invoking an aggrieved sense of, 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 you know, of, of white victimhood. Uh, and, you know, it's not, it's, there's this kind of idea that somehow that these people are like, you know, the working man, you know, the everyday, you know, kind of people who just kind of run to the mill, they get frustrated with the political elite, you know, but 40% of the, those who are, were arrested uh, as capital rioters were business owners or held white collar jobs. Right. And and if we think about um, something like the so-called American Revolution, what was revolutionary about the, the American Revolution? There was no you know, reorganization of society uh, for social solidarity amongst black people, amongst indigenous people and amongst white people. 
right? No, it was a it was a a, a counter revolution of property in many sense to maintain these sort of uh, levels of of inequality, even amongst white people themselves, right? Whiteness is a fiction. It's it's a way to collapse class differences and to say that you know the checker at Walmart or at the convenience store has something in common with Donald Trump. And it's like, they have nothing in common, you know, just by the mere fact of their skin color, that's it. Other than that, they have completely different class interests and outlook. Um, so I would say I am, I'm optimistic <laughs> in this moment um, because I think more and more, like even, you know, here in the States, I'm, I'm sure you've been following it over there, but there's been, you know, the conviction of Derek Chauvin who, killed George Floyd on all three counts of murder. And it's not to say that that's the solution. You know, the verdict of commit of, of, you know, charging or convicting a cop with murder of a black man is not the solution to the problem. Um, but last year, that probably would not have happened. Two years ago, that probably would not have happened, right? And so in many senses, Black Lives Matter has raised the consciousness of, yeah. you know, of people in this country. Um, we don't see it necessarily reflected in the politically, you know, in the political elite, but nonetheless, there's the transformations are deep and long lasting. And this is, you know, I, I was politicized uh, at the in the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. And I went to my first anti-war protest, I was still in high school. And that politicized me. But the kind of politics that young people and the movements today are espousing and the vision that they have, uh, and the kind of um, transformational power that they have, I didn't, I didn't see that as a young person. And so I would say I'm, I'm much more hopeful. And it doesn't just like rely on the youth, you know, like to change the world, like, you know, people our age have to, you know, also uh, be be a part of that process. But I would say even though with the cynical nature of representational politics, the cynical nature of injury politics, the cyn cynical nature of identity politics, the cynical nature of white supremacy, Despite all that, I'm incredibly optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Um, you mentioned earlier the kind of sacred relationship between uh, indigenous people and water as uh, demonstrated in that speech there that we, we touched upon. This resacralizing could be seen, as you indicated, not as a kind of miss the sort of mystical branch of savagery and ignorance but a kind of rational appreciation of the symbiosis between the uh, inhabitants of the planet and the the planet the planet itself when i like hear you say this stuff man about like uh like sort of like the capitol hill thing that sort of 40 percent of them are sort of kind of uh, were business owners and in sort of white collar roles and but but simultaneously the veil of whiteness to um, mask ec the economic inequality that is central to the kind of politics that we in the U I suppose have in America. I feel that that there is a great deal to learn from the historical, obviously historical period that you, that, that you know that you, that you're sort of citing and and drawing from, even with that kind of that alliance between the settle the cowboy Indian alliance, i.e., like the fact is is that 
you know, whether that's um, a na- whether that's apocryphal or sorry, if it's inaccurate or not, whether or not Trump, you know, I think there's a, certainly a sense that Trump appealed to blue collar Americans. Uh, it was part of an anti elitism, anti intellectualism. That and I, I can't help but think that the sort of the white supremacy component of that is a kind of an unconscious and ubiquitous attribute as opposed to central and defining i.e. the white supremacy is institutional and somewhat transcendent of uh, of various political strata so it's going to be present in the democrats it's going to be present in republicans it's, it's sort of there anyway do you feel that in order to have a mean, meaningful progress meaningful alternatives there needs to be a political movement that acknowledges the sacredness of the land acknowledges the rights of uh, various people, natural inhabitants, f- f- descendants of slaves, but also brings somehow to the forefront the interests and rights of white, non-white, all economically underserved communities. Brings them together and isn't part of the problem with identity politics. Is it allows you know figures like Biden to shaft indigenous people with a like that mental copper mining. St. Paul's thing that you talked us through whilst posturing as a kind of, you know, a friend to non-white communities. Isn't that something that needs to be counterposed? And doesn't that counterposition require alliances that go beyond race and enter in a class? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of, uh, you know, to go back to that time period in the Black Hills Alliance, they defeated Union Carbide. They defeated... Um, some of the most powerful energy corporations um, by uniting together, you know, I I would say as a class, (laughs) not Mm -hmm. as a, um, not as, you know, distinct kind of categories. I mean, I think, you know, for PR purposes, it says a lot when you have a cowboy and Indian alliance, right? But there were uh, miners, gold miners in the Black Hills. And if you know anything about that region, gold mining was key to the theft of our of our territory the reason why um, they took our territory is to get access to gold and so you had minor miners unions in the black hills who were talking to indigenous people and said you know what indigenous rights actually protect us as as miners because it's not like we have a choice like nobody like wakes up one day and be like yeah i want to be you know i want to work in the fossil fuel industry i want to contribute to climate change um, these are real like economic choices for survival that uh, people often have to make, right? And we can't fault them for doing so. Um, so if the only alternative for a job is to work in the oil field or be a prison guard, you know, like you can't, you can't fault poor people for, for making those decisions. They're making survival decisions. But if they begin to understand, like as these miners did, that their safety, their work, you know, their, their workplace um, safety, um, is contingent upon living in a healthy environment. And they're using things such as arsenic and mercury to, you know, gold mine. Um, they realize that like, actually, this isn't just about our protection as workers, but the only reason why they got to that point to, to acknowledge uh, treaty rights, indigenous rights is fundamental to their rights as workers was because they formed a union, right? Um, and they formed a union because they were, you know, they were organizing against capital, they're organizing against the bosses. And I think that's, you know, we have to understand that these things, you know, I I can, I can sit here, you and I can have this conversation. I don't know who's going to, you know, who's listening, you know, at their job place right now and being like, oh, I'm convinced, you know, this happens through struggle, like it happens through education, right. And I would say, 
that the majority of Americans, whether they hold backwards views or not, if they understood the real history of this country and this land, that they would have a much different opinion. Um, because, you know, like you said, you know, white supremacy isn't this kind of transcendent, transhistorical phenomenon. It happened. It didn't happen by accident, right? It unfolded throughout history. It looks different throughout, you know, different times and places. It's not the same. It's historically contingent. It's socially produced and it can be socially defeated as well. So I would say, yes, there has to be, you know, and uh, some kind of, you know, class alliance. I would say it has to be more so based on class than this idea that we can organize on identity. And thinking about um, these miners, how I actually found out about these miners um, was because I was doing work with the nurses union out in California. And one of the old kind of like union bosses, he like, you know, he's like, I used to, you know, he's like, I knew some Lakota people. And I was like, oh yeah, who did you know? We're a small nation. So we, we it's, it's racist to say that, you know, all native people know each other, but the reality is we all know each other. <laughs> but, but he's like, oh, I knew this, this person and this. And I was like, what the heck? And, and it turned out that he was one of those miners, those gold miners. Um, who was involved in adopting indig an indigenous rights framework as a workers' rights framework uh, in in the mines? And I was like, this is incredible, you know. So it shows what is possible, right? Um, and I think this gets to another aspect when you when we talk about things such as water is sacred, we have to think about you know the term water protector and where that came from. That came from Standing Rock, and that came from indigenous, the Standing Rock Nation taking a stand against the Dakota Access Pipeline and saying, not only is this water sacred for us as indigenous people, um, but it's also sacred for the, you know, the 8 million people who rely on this river for, for drinking water. And so when anyone would walk through those camp, the, the protest camp gates, they automatically became a water protector, not because they were indigenous. Many of them were white, many of them were black, many of them, you know, were from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so it was a universal, like, uh, it was a universal kind of label. It, it didn't just apply to indigenous people. It was centered on indigenous values, but it showed that our struggles aren't some kind of like, you know, tack on issue that everyone can be a water protector and that this is something that should be ingrained in our society. This is something that should be valued. And if we think about water protectors, land defenders throughout history, if we think about the indigenous people in the Amazon rainforest who are protecting the, the very oxygen, the very lungs that we all need to survive, they're being criminalized for their jobs, right? That's their job, right? That's their job is to protect that environment. They don't get paid for it, right? But they get criminalized for it. And we can think about, you know, this is necessary for life on this planet to continue but yet it's a devalued form of labor and work, much like, you know, we think of the, the kind of division of gender and uh, gendered labor, um, such as caretaking, child rearing, and all of those things as, as falling on women. And they don't get paid for that, but it's necessary for the reproduction of life, right? So this is a reorientation of values and how we understand work, how we understand, you know, our relationship to the natural environment, because it's not just something that like is our problem as indigenous people, it's everybody's problem. Everybody has an investment to protect clean water, clean land, and also, you know, the Amazon rainforest. Like I still, want, I want the next generation to breathe, you know, a clean air and to experience clean drinking water. This, yes, this reorientation will require, as well as the new alliances that we've touched upon, a new mythos, I feel, 
that may necessarily need to be separated from economic imperatives. I feel that it is often a mistake to try to persuade people on the basis of utility because I feel that utility is such a significant part of the problem. Like if you don't look after this water, then you're not going to have any water. And I recognize that, that that's how that that's a sort of a functional way of um, recruiting activism and making people appreciate that separation is temporary and illusory and there is this sort of it's, the separation is ultimately underwritten by a kind of oneness and that's not necessarily a mystical idea but a, a, a practical one based on observable systems such as respiration that require an external component for the you know and digestion all of these you know individualized systems have an externalized component i i wonder how without resorting to economics a new mythology might be uncovered to unify people you know because as you said it's going to be a struggle and that struggle is going to require motivation and i feel that the sh a key can part of the subjugation of people regardless of you know race but, but but particularly salient to class is this kind of wearying toll that modern life takes the hypnosis of media and propaganda the negative effects of bad diet the lowering of horizons the increasingly limited role that we even play in our own lives the lack of agency the lack of democracy what little i know about um some of the nations uh, that that you are you know, like are speaking about and to a degree on behalf of you know, for me, it sounded like there was sort of an inherent sense of democracy, an inherent sense of responsibility that went not was not just lateral but vertical, that travelled through time, that understood that that you couldn't have the individual at the apex of all experience while the individual needed to be honoured, but also this role of responsibility. I feel that some of these ideas, I don't know how they scale. Perhaps that's one of the problems. Perhaps they don't need to scale and couldn't scale. But I certainly feel there's important information in there. As a historian, I wonder um, if, if that's a, if sort of the mythology of the nations uh, that you know, are important and significant to you, and if there's anything you can tell us about that, and and, and whether or not they can be rebooted and uh, and um, sort of energized, sort of presumably in the way that they operate for people that belong to those um, groups. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good question. Um, it's something you know that I said earlier, and I could expand a little bit on it this idea you know in our in our language we we you know we talk about we'll talk which means to to be in relation or to be a good relative and that's the aspiration of a lakota person i don't think that's a universal i don't know if that's a universal aspiration for all indigenous people i don't want to you know like generalize um, because we are distinct there are over in just this country alone there are over 570 different nations with different histories different value systems different languages etc um but according to you know that philosophy of living in good relation that's something you know we think about you know throughout throughout our history and the first sort of prophet that we have uh in in lakota history is uh which actually means white buffalo calf woman it was actually a woman who brought us back into correct relations with uh the non-human world and the animal world because, you know, frankly, we were just being shitheads at the time. <laughs> we weren't being good relatives. And, you know, these animals and, you know, these plants weren't producing and, and sustaining our lives. And so 
this person came uh, and brought us back into correct relations. And some, you know, some would attribute it to somebody like a figure like Jesus. I don't know. Like, I don't think everything has to be compared to uh, Christianity. Uh, I don't really care to make that comparison um, because I don't know if, I don't know, did Jesus like bring like people back into relations with animals? Was that, a, was, did he do that? I'm asking you as a expert. Well, I feel like, Gosh, my understanding of the Christ m metaphor and the function of the Christ figure is to actualize divinity within the human. That God is not abstract. God is personal. That God needn't be mediated. God is felt. That God is part. You are God. God's within you. The, I and the Father are one. Like that, the light and consciousness are analogous to God. That we are the living experience of God, and as such, all separation, all conflict is futile, and that we should live in um, unity. That's the sort of mythic Christ and much of the gospel Christ. There's sort of obviously lots of analysis of a historical Christ that sort of suggests that he's more in line with an apocalyptic preacher that were common in that historical era that were sort of in a sense talking largely about end times and how judgment was upon us and we needed to sort of wake up. But for the, the, the Christ that has prevailed and therefore one might assume the one that's been most culturally effective is the sort of the idea of Christ as embodied divinity as both carnality and the sublime combined and the possibility that that is something that's accessible to all of us simultaneously divine and human that our, our fleshly desires can somehow be converted into divine service so i think that that is i would say you know and i'm, I'm not in such a culturally sensitive position as you but i would say that that is like a an archetypal idea that could recur pan culturally that's, I guess that is very appealing. Um, <laughs> Four billion Christians can't be wrong, Nick. <laughs> Unless it's, you know, the Vatican colonization. <laughs> well, we did, I guess we didn't kill our, our, our prophet. So, <laughs> uh, so she, yeah, so she, I mean, that's, that's a very good description because I think in many ways that could be applied to somebody like uh, De Sawi or the, the white buffalo calf woman. Very much brought us, um, I would say more so less about the kind of the divinity of the of the the person themselves but the divinity of all relations uh more so that and so she brought us back into correct relations and we you know we had recorded history most people think that we were illiterate you know we didn't have a writing system but we had a recorded history uh, we kept our you know our own history and in the early one of the earliest kind of pictographs that we had created it is of her arrival and her bringing you know making us lakota and lakota actually means it's derivative of the, of the word friend in our language, which means um, kola. And kola is not just like friend, you know, it's not like just like mate, you know, how you say it casually. It actually means something very, very deep that you have like almost a, a relationship with somebody that transcends just being like either related to them or acquaintances with them, like yes. meaning you would give your life for them, right? And so wow. lakota, lakoda means like big, big friends or you know, big alliance. So our name, our very name is about making alliances, making relations with people. And so she made what we would consider the first covenant or the first treaty, because wo Lakota actually later became uh, our word for treaty. And so a lot of these, you know, a lot of these words, they change over time, right? And so when we made treaties with the United States government, our most famous and most powerful treaty was the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. And it was one of the only treaties 
that actually entailed a section uh, for non-human relations. It literally set aside uh, an entire 35 million acre, I don't know what that translates into hectares. I apologize for the, the, the wait, do you guys, do, wait, do y'all use, I can't, I always mess it up. Do y'all use uh, like the English system of like land I don't, when people say hectares and acres, I have to convert it into football pitches. Okay. <laughs> so a lot of footballs, football fields. And yeah, so like there was a lot of these, you know, so there's this entire territory that was set aside because we understood our treaty or our agreement or our covenant with the United States had to include non-human relations. For us to be Lakota people, we had to set aside a hunting territory for our Buffalo nations because we call ourselves Teoyate, which means Buffalo Nation as well. And so it's it's very unique. And you know, the the treaty makers from the US side, they were all like they only met with um military generals. And they were always, always men. They would never meet with our women, even though the women were considered, you know, we are a matriarchal society, they were considered leaders. And so this act of treaty making or entering into a relation with the with the colonizing nation actually usurped in some ways um, or attempted to usurp the political authority of indigenous women, uh, but also created this agreement um, that set aside a 35 million acre territory for the Buffalo Nation specifically. And so what the what these military minded, you know, military men did was they they said, well, if the buffaloes don't if the buffalo doesn't exist anymore then this territory shouldn't exist anymore so what did they start doing they started exterminating the buffalo the, the us military did this most uh frontier army uh posts never actually engaged indigenous nations they never actually fought them but they were simply posted out on the frontier to shoot and kill and exterminate the buffalo nations because the extermination of a buffalo meant literally translated into the acquisition of territory. And so this is so this is this is how like uh, imbricated these kind of uh, knowledge systems are and also thinking about the relationship that we have with the colonizing nation state like the United States that our understanding because when you interpret treaties it comes from both sides not one signer gets you know a monopoly of interpretation both sides get interpretation and so our side is that we defend our treaty territory to also defend the non-human relations, which includes our Buffalo nations, right? And so when I was writing about, when I was writing, you know, go back to that Bill Gates piece, this is something that has always stuck out in my mind is that there's, you know, there's, you know, the, the largest Buffalo herd is privately owned by somebody like Ted Turner. And we as indigenous people, my nation, we have our own Buffalo herd. We have you know, so it's it's part of our, our fundamental obligation as indigenous nations to protect the non-human world because it's literally part of that original covenant that was made by Te Sanwi, right? Um, the white buffalo calf woman. And so we walk forward with that in our mind that we understand, you know, that we make relations with the non-human world as well. And I would say in a modern application of this or a modern iteration of this comes from a country like Bolivia that you know draft or that came together and drafted the people's accords in 2010 and that's where the the rights of nature discourse the rights of nature movement actually arose to say that pachamama or the uh, mother earth has rights 
um, that should be codified and should be protected and can be a plaintiff against states or corporations if harmed. And this, this um, rights of nature movement has expanded to places like Aotearoa or New Zealand to give a river uh, personhood, right? Or in here in the United States, I think uh, uh, Western or Eastern or Western Washington, no, it's Eastern Washington, no, it's Western Washington. There's a river in Western Washington that was also accorded those kinds of rights of, of, of personhood to say that they have the same rights as a human being. I don't know if that's a kind of like that one-to-one -one equation is, is really apt, but the kind of intent behind it shows that the, you know, the, that rivers, mountains, forests do have some kind of sentient being, do have some kind of right to exist, right? Not just to exist for their own sake, but also to exist to understand our relation. How do we live in good relation to, to water, to, to plants and to animals? It's fascinating that in a secular society where religion has not only been extracted from government, but has perhaps been extracted altogether from the order of power, that it is necessary to grant personhood to a river or trees in order to resacralize it because there is no cultural notion of what it is to be sacred other than, well, I suppose it could be like a person. And that's sort of such a kind of <laughs> reductive way of looking at the, the sacred power of nature. I like these saying there about the good relative and the sort of potency of like, you know, that you would give up your life, i.e. that that connection, that relationship is more important than sort of personal sovereignty or, you know, personhood. Um, it reminds me of something that Carlo Rovelli, the quantum physicist, said when we were on here, and I'm sure he said it elsewhere too in fact i think he's written a book about it like where he said that at the most fundamental level of the material world in the subparticular realm nothing can be said to exist at all except in relationship to other you know, sort of sub-molecular factors like that existence is dependent on relationship existence is relational i feel that these this process of resacralizing the world and recognizing that there is a sort of divinity in the way that we relate to one another the way that we relate to the planet is a a vital tool in providing an alternative narrative or myth to the you know let's face it the fundamentalist ideology upon which the sun never sets of global capitalism the imperatives of which can not be challenged easily and and will always present gestures smiles green new deals instead of any the, necessarily the change that is required will impede the interests of the powerful so we might as well cut to the chase and start saying it's energy giants it's tech companies it's billionaires like bill gates it's the states you know like the state power itself that's ultimately going to have to be challenged an uprising of this kind is going to require new alliances new alliances that you can see how it advantages the powerful to have us sort of squabbling as we currently are around certain very particular bespoke, sometimes syntactic issues. You know, it's, we're being stymied by our own kind of protocols when there are these enormous battles to be undertaken. Yeah, the, the ruling class is united and we aren't. Um... I mean, I think you you hit like the the ruling class in the United States is united through 
the the state itself, right? Um, I mean, we just saw one of the most lucrative contracts go to Elon Musk for space exploration. Um, we're, you know, next, uh, I, we're recording this, I don't know what's, when this is going to publish, but tomorrow is Earth Day. And the, the United States has, you know, historically, since at least 2009, um, the United Nations has recognized the, the rights of Mother Earth Day that was sponsored by the government of Bolivia to kind of have like a, a global South view of, of uh, environmental justice or, or um, climate change. And, you know, since the coup, um, the coup government withdrew Bolivia from that, that position on Earth Day. And now the United States has, you know, under, under Biden's kind of own, own language has reasserted leadership in, in, in climate change and climate mitigation. And so he's inviting, you know, it's like literally just like a, I think it's just like a, it's like an expo to sell like Elon Musk's, you know, uh, Tesla cars and things like that. Like that's, that's the vision. That's the kind of state level leadership that the United States is providing. It doesn't mean like that we, there are um, a lack of alternatives. There are alternatives, right? And I think what you're pointing out is that like, we have to find, and you know, this we could have conversations about it, but it really has to happen on a on a grassroots level. You know, people organizing around you know certain issues, but we have to find unity as a class, as people who who are the have-nots, the humble people of the planet. Um, we have to have, we have to find some kind of common ground and unity to to fight back, because otherwise, what's going to happen is we're going to get. Yeah, we, maybe we do transition away from fossil fuels. Maybe that happens. And that I, you know, you and I would agree that that's a good thing. But the level of exploitation and inequality would still exist, right? Um, and we can't let that happen or fall back on the people who are most affected. Um, and I think this is where, you know, I think one of the biggest steps we can take, uh, of practical steps that we can take, is begin to tax um, the rich. The rich have an outsized carbon or carbon footprint. So it needs to be taxed. We need to raise taxes on them. That's the first, you know, that's the first practical step that we can take because what happens with people like Bill Gates, what happens with people like uh, Jeff Bezos is to avoid taxes, they sequester that money into their foundations where they still have control over that money, right? It's not a public good. It's it's a it's still a, it's still private, and it's, they still have control over how that money is being distributed and how that social wealth is being distributed. And we have to, I think, change our mentality that, you know, the social wealth that workers, that farmers, that you know, everyday people produce belongs to them, um, and that they should have a larger cut of that pie. You know, those are just beginning steps. Like, I, obviously, there's more radical things that need to happen, but I think advocating for these things um, at a, you know, at a, like a small scale, achievable wins builds the confidence, builds the psycho, the psychology of of you know everyday people that you can win. Like, I'll be honest, like I haven't been an academic. I come from a poor ass background. I grew up in a fucking trailer, you know. Like, I grew up around white kids who I didn't know were racist until we got older. Until I understood, like. You know, I was like, why, like, why are you calling me this? Like, what, like, I don't even understand. Like we grew up in this, like, we literally grew up in the same filth together, you know, like what, like, what was it that divided us, you know? Um, and I worked as a fast food worker. I've been in, I've been in fast food longer than I've been in the academy, right? I've made more pizzas than I've published books, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And so I understand, like, I understand that bosses suck. I understand that, you know, what you have to do to survive. 
um, and that we should we should organize as a class in you know across across differences, right? That we have to find commonalities. Like differences are important. You can't escape race because the system is racist, right? Um, but we have to organize and understand that you know racism, white supremacy, isn't just about controlling people like me or you know black folks or whoever. It's actually about controlling white folks first and foremost. Um, and so there is an there's a vested interest in all of us to overcome this to move beyond. And I think you know as a kind of like a populist, like everybody hates the rich. Like I don't like every everyone can agree on that that they have undeserved wealth and power. So that's something that we can we can organize around. And I think somebody like Trump is very uh, cunning in that regard because he's like, he plays himself off as anti-elitist, as you said, you know, anti-intellectual. He's like the common everyday guy, you know, he just says what he feels like is on his mind and he's, in, he's considered an outsider or a maverick. Um, and it's not to glorify that because he's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's an awful dude, right? But it's to say that he is tapping into something that I think a lot of people, you know, feel deep down inside is that like, yeah, like, fuck the rich, <laughs> you know, like, like, that's something that we can all agree on that this they play an outsized influence over our destinies over our dignity as human beings. Um, and it's unfair. Yes, that's beautifully explained, Nick. And listening to you, it makes me feel that there is a vast territory that is not occupied for a true populism that operates beyond the exaggeration of difference and is about the promotion of unity. I like what you said there about like, uh, it's a very easy thing to misinterpret, I'd imagine that, that the white people are the biggest victims of white supremacy. In fact, I'm gonna organize a campaign around that for the white victims of white supremacy. <laughs> but I understand that what you're saying is that this the system benefits from the oppressing huge numbers of, you know, like, it obfuscates class politics, it obfuscates the class alliances that could exist between all different colored people with the same interests. It obfuscates that obvious solution. and. I don't know for how much longer we can expect or anticipate or even hope for the parties of the left of centre to sort of gradually adopt some of these ideas. I don't know why why, and we don't start to construct different vehicles for these ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult task. I mean, in the United States, like we like again, we can we can harp on the Republicans for just the overt kind of racism and the policies. You know whether it's disenfranchising black voters, native voters, uh, or Mexican Americans or brown people in general from voting or from disempowering them. You know, just politically. You know, that's a real thing. You can't ignore that they're they're engaging in this kind of racialized warfare against the working class. Um, but at the same time, you know, like just to kind of bring it back home again, the cynicism of just saying that we put, you know, a Hispanic man in charge of homeland security so that now it's Latinos who are victimizing Latinos or, uh, you know, Mexicanos or whatever it is, um, that's not progress. You know, having a black cop is not progress to, to police black people. Like that's not progress because in this country, and I don't, I don't know much about UK, uh, you know, I'll be honest, it's not something I study very much. I know Stuart Hall, I know some of the thinkers, you know, uh, Raymond Williams, but you know, like the, 
the 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 reality in this country is that policing becomes a solution for everything you know um every sort of aspect of our lives you know it's there's always an increase in police uh, budgets or police you know policing itself I and mean, also you know there's a corollary with the military but instead of answering you know what are considered what would be considered economic or social needs such as housing such as healthcare you know people who are mentally uh, who have mental health issues who are on the streets who need healthcare and care itself instead the solution becomes the police right mm -hmm. and that's the hammer that the united states have it only possesses one tool for everything right and so if all you have is a hammer then everything looks like a nail um and that's where we see mass incarceration that's where we see police violence you know rampant police violence uh, so it's not just to say that we're against, you know, this, like the the kind of policing and, you know, kind of the racial state of the racist state itself is to say that we actually stand for something that like every, you know, housing is, is a fundamental human right. Like, you know, healthcare in this country is is awful. It's, it's disgusting the way that people are allowed to die. I mean, we saw that with the COVID-19 pandemic, one in 120 Navajo Nation citizens who lived on the reservation, one in 120 died from COVID-19. One in 120. You had elders who passed away, you know, who are language speakers who, it's like literally watching libraries burn, right? Because a lot of that knowledge is held um, through oral tradition. And so we understand that it's not just like whether or not you can get aspirin when you get an infection. We understand that this is a structural issue that like Navajo people, one out of three don't have running water or electricity who live on the Navajo Nation reservation, right? One out of three in the, in the richest country in the world. Um, so why is the solution to all of our problems more police? You know, mm. there's obviously there's this, there's a, a, an abundance of wealth that's accumulated at the expense of the, the rest of the planet yeah. that you know we could actually we could solve like homelessness in this country could be solved tomorrow right yeah. the, the issue of mass vaccinations could be solved as well so these aren't things that are out of the realm of possibility and it doesn't just benefit indigenous people it's not just our issue we understand i mean i hate this phrase but a rising tide raises all boats kind of thing i hate that phrase I, you know it's used in all kinds of weird ways but in reality, it really is if if you go, you know, as organizers, you know, somebody who's been involved in movements, you go where people are most harmed, right, you always go where mo people are most harmed, and you identify, you know, what it is. And oftentimes, it's not just me like saying, Oh, well, we need like this anti capitalist system. It's like you can't eat ideology, you can't eat, you know, good thoughts, but you can eat food. And you can be you can be warm you can be uh, housed in a warm house right so those are things that i think as people you know i consider myself on the left you know maybe the far left i don't know the orientation um but those are needs that we can all organize around and that not don't just benefit indigenous people they they benefit everyone um and i think that has to be the basis of our of our politics um we can't just speak for an abstract we, or we can't just speak for like a kind of like um, a kind of subset like of, you know, like there's this, you know, all indigenous people share the same kind of value system, um, but we can speak for people's materials and material needs. And that's something we can actually solve, you know, that's not unsolvable, but the priorities of this country, the priorities of, you know, even the green, the, the not just the green new deal, but the green energy transition is one in which 
the defense department, you know, uh, and the intelligence community are seeing climate change as what they call a threat multiplier, that 250 climate refugees might be coming to this country, right? So we need to build better, better walls. We need to build better border security. We need to intensify. We need to uh, increase our exclusion of the other. And that's like, how is that different from what Trump has said? You know, it's just, it's just kind of rebranding. It's just like greenwashing the military. It's greenwashing the police. It's, it's greenwashing Fortress America. Those aren't real alternatives. And I think if everyday people understood that this was like what was being done on quote unquote their behalf, I think we would have, we'd be having a much different conversation, not in the, not just in this country, but throughout the world. Beautiful. Thank you, Nick. I like what you said. I've got me interested in quite a lot of things there. One, I like what you're saying about that sort of the police. It sort of reminds me of the sort of corporate mentality that's sort of played out a few times. I think notably with GM Motors that they discover there's a fault in the car that will kill a certain number of people. Then they calculate, oh, we'll have to pay out this much in lawsuits and recalling the vehicles will cost this much. Let them go. You know, they make an economic decision and it's easier to, like it makes more economic sense to create a police force to oppress the legitimate expression of suffering than to deal with and address the suffering i was again taken with this something of a, a little more of an esoteric point i suppose but what is that because in uh, that speech that we discussed uh, is, i think i'm saying his name right russell mead at the beginning of our conversation he he's talked explicitly about something that's sort of talked about in sort of classical philosophy you know socratic philosophy about the power of uh oral uh, communication versus written c c communication that there's a sort of a different power you know and in that speech he, he says at the beginning i'm saying this now you might be reading it but i'm saying it you know and he goes into the sort of significance of that and you there with like the loss of elders and stuff and then being like living libraries what is that devotion to that method of recording and is there something in it other than sort of you know cultural things around just the sort of you said something about pictograms earlier and the kind of techniques that have, you know is there something ideological at play there yeah i mean so if we think about the treaties if we go back to them we signed them they were written in english right they weren't written i mean we didn't have a written well i guess we did have a written language at the time but is we were functionally illiterate compared to you know the colonizers in that sense so we couldn't read the treaties so how is it that we knew the the rights or the things that were articulated in those treaties and it's because we had a well-developed oral tradition right and so like you know i'm an academic so and i when i submit something for publication it gets peer-reviewed right so they send it out to people who are experts in my field and they tell me like oh you know you got this fact this fact wrong or maybe you should cite this that's like a textual kind of peer review process when we when we think about you know and I, I, I can i can create a list of books that you should read because there's there is like a very profound uh, oral history or oral tradition uh within our culture and so like somebody like Black Elk Speaks, I don't know if you've ever heard of this book, but it's kind of like considered the North American Native, uh, North American uh, Bible of indigenous people, right? Um, and it, he, you know, he's Lakota, like we're, we're very nationalistic. We, you know, we're very famous. Russell means like all these people, like, yeah, we, um, our treaties, all these things, like, yeah, everyone wants to be us, right? So the stereotypical Indian is always Lakota people. So we're, we're used to it. You know, um, love us or hate. There, we say there's two kinds of people in the world. There's there's Lakotas and there's people who want to be us. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Black Elk Speaks, 
very famous uh, vision um, and oral history. And so when you read the public, the published version of this speech, he's, you know, it comes off as like a monologue, like it's coming from one person. Um, but when you go back and look at John Nyhart, who's the, the poet who uh, did these interviews, he's actually in the company of five other uh, Lakota men. And the reason why he's in the company of five other Lakota men, he says, I'm going to, you know, these people know this history as well, and they're here to correct me if I get it wrong. And so it's like live peer review, right? It's citate or it's, uh, it's live, uh, it's live fact checking. And so as oral history, we don't just remember it as individuals. It's something when you tell a story, like when I told the story about Te Sanwi, that you collectively tell that story. And if you get something wrong, somebody will correct you, right? So it's a very well-developed methodology of, of remembering. It's a well-developed, um, it's a well-developed tool, so much so that it's actually been used in the court of law. So like, how is it that people who are functionally illiterate can't read, you know, the Western alphabet can understand what, you know, 17 million acres is conceptually. How the, how the hell did they know that that was, you know, that that was um, part of the treaty? Like we could recite word by word in our language in Lakota, the very, you know, verbatim, the, the entire treaty itself. And it's because there was a functional kind of uh, oral tradition that was very well developed and it continues, it continues to this day. And one other kind of aspect of this, and this is what I really, I really like is whereas, you know, in kind of written word, that written word becomes truth, it becomes the truth, the sole truth. Um, and when we talk about oral tradition, many things can be true at once, right? So for example, our origin stories as indigenous people are often, you know, we're people say like, oh, you were just, you know, you, you came from Asia, you crossed this land bridge or whatever, or that like, you know, for us, it's like we have an origin story where we came out of the, came out of the mountains, the Black Hills or what we call Hisapa. Um, but there's other origin stories that say that we actually migrated from the South or we migrated from the East Coast. Well, in fact, all those things are true because our human, our, our human, our, our, history as a human group is very complicated and diverse. Another one is like um, back home, there's a famous medicine man and there's a debate. It's not really a debate, but I was told a certain family story about how he died, right? I was told that he, um, he began going to church and he kind of like set aside, you know, the traditional Lakota ways. And because he started going to church and dressing like a white man and eating white food that he got sick and died, right? Whereas my, you know, my cousin and his family, they say, well, no, actually, you know, um, he, you know, he, uh, he kind of like um, something happened, like he did something and somebody didn't return the favor and, you know, it basically harmed him spiritually and physically and he died that way. Right. So, but we don't sit there and say like, no, my version of the truth is true. And it's like, actually these, both of these truths can be true. Right. And in fact, it gives a, comp a more complex history of, of who we are or the histories that we think we know, right? And so it's not just about the kind of single master narrative. It's, it's to say that, you know, it's a world in which, you know, uh, many worlds fit as Lakota people. And that's a Zapatista quote. Um, that's what they say. And I would say that's very much who we are. It's not about like when missionaries came, we didn't like, we're not seeking converts, right? So conversion was always, uh, anathema to who we were 
And so we would actually sit and hear them out and be like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. so this is your truth. You know, <laughs> you believe in the sky genie, uh, you sacrificed your prophet and you ate him. Okay, you know, cool. I'm sorry if I'm bastardizing <laughs> Christianity. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. There's a few versions. <laughs> but they're, you know, they, they accepted that truth. And I think they're, we don't, you know, the kind of Western knowledge system doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for multiple truths to exist or truths to exist in relationship to each other, right? Um, so that's that's kind of where the oral tradition, I think, is is most valuable, right? And it's it exists um, somewhat as a mnemonic device in terms of the symbols that we use. You can tell a story, you see an image, and you might just think it's like, well, it's just this kind of image of a cow or image of a buffalo. But in fact, there's this entire history that has to be told uh, in in relation to that that image. So it's a complicated it's a complicated and, and well developed methodology. I'm not an oral historian. I don't. I'm not a keeper of those particular stories. They are specifically or more so for um, the elder generation, and so they're the ones who are the knowledge keepers in that sense. So it's something that it's almost like a status symbol to be a storyteller. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it is very cool. <laughs> I like that it's sort of it's living, but if it lives, it also can die. You know, like in your earlier example, that like that I feel like a Russell Meads in his thing, like it's sort of I don't know if he said this or I imagined it later, like that it's sort of like that once something is written, that's it. It's dead. It's dead. It's on the page, and the spoken word is relational to your point about good relatives earlier. I like that component that it requires the speaker, but it requires the listener. So it's a sort of a transitional and a relational piece of philosophy. I was struck then too by the way that you said that the logos of American corporatism and leisure society co-opts uh, native people imagery, i.e. sports logos, etc. I was thinking that the, the dominator culture, whether you regard that as being racially oriented, historically or economically, uh, requires a kind of a relationship with the idea the idea of the savage i.e. that all cultures emerge from cultures that are you know cunt a gatherer closer to the earth sedentary to a lesser or greater degree that usually have some kind of totemism to uh, instantiate otherwise uh, potentially abstract connections between quarry uh, and the the sort of you know the human the, you know the human and like so like that therefore the the sort of the relationship between the, the sort of dominator culture and the lands that are being conquered or the people the inhabitants of those lands is both one of reverential romanticism in a kind of unconscious ancestor worship knowing that all cultures must have at some point lost this knowledge and connection in order to make that transaction into materialist cultures where the land is deadened and materialized and also it requires a kind of um it requires a dehumanization in the terms that you've outlined you talked before about the kind of paradox of between that sort of romanticizing of uh, of native people like oh my god the sort of the wonder the beauty the mystery isn't it gorgeous and also, we're going to have to kill these people in order to get our hands on the loot and the bounty. I recognise there is not just one telos for human people, that there are sort of many, many branches. But it, it feels, even when we, you were talking about uh, your the sacred, the sacred buffalo 
white buffalo calf woman that um once more you know like there is a sort of uh at least a, a mythic relationship between christ and the lamb who referred to as the lamb partly because of his you know the sacrificial nature of you know the relationship and um, but also there's a sort of a connection between sort of muhammad and goats and I suppose like those are the relationships there between these sort of uh, monotheistic uh, cultures and pantheonistic cultures are that, you know, both of these figures somehow have dominion over animals. Christ, the shepherd, Muhammad, peace be upon him, the shepherd uh, or goat herd. Whereas in your the culture you described to me, the, the is the embodiment of the animal, the embodiment of the totem living as the totem even there there is not the the idea that it is a utility a resource but there is no separation i was just um, struck by some of those things man and wanted to say them to you well you should uh you should you should read or listen to john trudell and maybe i can send you some of his stuff because i would say he's a dakota you know he's he's a he's a contemporary of russell means and he's definitely the i would say the philosopher of the indigenous movement you know when <laughs> when we were like at standing rock you know when we go out to an action and there'd be a police line people would be listening to like john trudell and his like his poetry and his because he, he says exactly the same things that you were saying this idea of domination that a monotheistic kind of christian god um you know is, is both patriarchal but also is is hierarchical and in saying that like you know it subsumes not just women but also nature itself um and it exerts kind of a domination over nature and it's fundamentally in contradiction of of who we are but i'd also say you know there's kind of you know like what you're getting at there is a romanticization i think for europe to be europe there has to be a primitive, right? And there has to be, for there to be modernity, there has to be, we can, you know, Europeans and modernity can only exist because there are unmodern people. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that puts us in a kind of a, um, a scale of civilization as if, you know, the aspiration is the modern nation state or a Western liberal democracy or secularism or whatever it is. And that's to say that all human cultures, you know, that's the apotheosis and that's what we should all aspire to or something that everything else is relatable to. But, you know, it's like, I'm like, in my mind, in the way that maybe it's a a little bit of nationalism on my part as a Lakota person is like, why don't we provincialize Mm -hmm. uh, Europe? And why don't we provincialize um, the United States? Not only, you know, um, as a kind of a, 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 a move in our minds, but to to think about you know in terms of alternatives that these aren't the only you know results of humanity like this isn't yeah. what everyone aspired to like we have all been knocked off because of colonization and imperialism we have all been knocked off our um our kind of social development um and and what we should be as nations as people right mm-hmm. uh, and i would say that europe colonized itself before it colonized the rest of the yeah. world um, I, I wouldn't, you know, there are still indigenous people in Europe, you know, there's the, there's the Sami of the Nordic countries. Um, but, you know, that kind of colonization process was exported to the rest of the. Yeah. Still now you get the mysteries in like sort of the Basque country in northern Spain and the Celt people and Gauls and all this, all these people that before like, yeah, Treaty of Westphalia and nationalism and that there's these sort of, yeah, lost, oppressed and lost, like, yeah, these oppressed narratives and stories that have just been blanched out into, into the horizon there.
Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, just one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, the You mentioned uh, matriarchal society. How functionally are some of these uh, nations, how are they matriarchal? How does that relate to power? What's relevant about it? So, um, you know, within our society, we have matriarchs. Um, it's not it's not like, oh, like it's not the the kind of opposite of patriarchy. You know, it's it's, it's not that it's, you know, uh, I would say patriarchy and, and heteropatriarchy is creating an antagonism of poles of gender, right? And into saying that there there has to be some kind of antagonistic relationship. Uh, it's not that we like lived in peace, right? We had problems. We, you know, we we're everyday people. We woke up, we had existential crises, you know, you know, that we had war, we fought each other. There was corruption, there were all kinds of those things. We're very human, right? Um, but the way we organized our society was less, um, less based on these kind of like this uh, gendered kind of uh, dominance or gendered uh, relations of power. There are definitely divisions, right, in society, but it wasn't um, as pronounced um, as sort of what we encountered with white society, right? And so one of the ways that indigenous women's authority is targeted at the very beginning is through the introduction of things such as like the sex trade. So when um, the they set up, uh, you know, trade forts in our area, that was the first thing that they did. It was be not only did they sell or trade in women and, or excuse me, in, in uh, furs and skins, uh, but they also began trading in the flesh of human beings in terms of ind uh, indigenous women. Um, and so that became a way to kind of undermine or usurp indigenous women's authority because wow. they only sent European men to colonize. They didn't send European women initially, right? And so that became a way of, of quote unquote, civilizing us is introducing new leadership and, and usurping those roles. And so today, as a result of the introduction of the, the sex trade alongside of the, um, the kind of the, the penetration of capitalism, um, we have what are called uh, the, the phenomenon of murdered missing indigenous women, where indigenous women uh, disappear at higher rates uh, and are killed. Uh, murder is the third le leading cause of death amongst indigenous women, right? And these are this is uh, a phenomenon that happens at a young age. Uh, and one in three uh, indigenous women are, are um, more likely to be raped in their lifetime. You know, so this this is a this is a phenomenon that's completely attached to um, the the colonization process and capitalism itself. And that was one of the things that they targeted right away was those matriarchal structures. Uh, and there's this really famous and it's not in our culture, but it's in the Sack and Fox culture. There's this um, testimony by Black. Uh, what is his name? Blackhawk. Um, he you know, he was they, they wanted him to cede all of this land in, in um, the middle of the United States and what is the, now known as the Midwest. And he said, you know, we're not as men tillers of the soil. We're not, we're not as men owners of the fields. Like, you have to speak to our women. And so they sent a women's council to meet um, with these generals to sign this treaty. And the, the generals were so insulted. They said, how dare you send women in our presence? Like what an insult to us. And so then they didn't sign a treaty. But this is, you know, this is a targeted usurpation of indigenous women's authority. And I would say like even, you know, Russell Means, uh, even John Trudell and the leaders of the, the Red Power movement 
although they're recognizable, they were simply the jawbones, you know, to use uh, Janet McLeod. She was a, um, uh, a red power activist at the time uh, from um, the, uh, the Washington of uh, the Northwest of the United States, an indigenous, very powerful indigenous women. She said, men are the jawbone and women are the backbone. And so as I grew up and understood the red power movement, yeah, I knew Russ, I, you know, I knew of Russell Means, but I more so knew of the red power movement of the grandmothers because they started organizing around the theft of children. So in 1969, you know, at the kickoff of the, the more kind of militant protests of the Red Power Movement, one in three Native children had been taken from their families and adopted out to white families, one in three. And this was an attack on the family structure, right? So to take the family is also to take the land or to take the children is also to take the land and specifically targeting uh, mothers themselves. And in some instances, in some reservations, by the mid 70s, one in three, or excuse me, one in four Native women had been forcefully sterilized. Um, and they did a calculation um, that of all the women that they could count that were forcefully sterilized by the Indian Health Services, um, there would have been born about 1.5 million uh, Indigenous babies, right? So these are like, genocidal this isn't just some kind of like oh we hate women for the hate the sake of hating women there's an, a genocidal intent behind it right and so my heroes or my heroines in, in our tradition are people like you know madonna thunderhawk who was a, a women she you know she helped found women of all red nations and talked about the politics of of reproduction and sexual health right as related to the land itself because in places like Pine Ridge and going back to Russell Means' speech, right? It's, I think, I'm glad you brought this up because it's like this history is kind of like converging on that speech itself. It was actually indigenous women who found that uranium uh, tailings in their water were causing forced abortions. And so all of these women who were, who were getting pregnant were having um, you know, uh, forced abortions and they couldn't figure out why. And it was because there were such high levels of uh, uranium contamination in the water that they were they were losing their children, and so this is a very kind of key issue, you know, for us. It's not just it, it doesn't sort of graft on to what we know as Western feminism neatly, because um, it has it, it arises from its own tradition, right? It's about a tradition of annihilation, uh, or it's a, about a history of annihilating um, indigenous women and killing them, right, to usurp their authority to get access to the land. Um, so when we talk about matriarchy, that's really what we're, we're, we're talking about. We're talking about the destruction and the annihilation of indigenous families um, and the knowledge keepers, the people who pass those things on. And also it just gets down to simple biological reproduction, right? Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's a kind of a complicated answer to your question, but that's why, you know, we have, you know, matriarchs such as, you know, LaDonna Brave Bull Allard, who recently passed away. Um, and she was the matriarch. She was the one who initiated or helped initiate or found uh, what became a sacred stone camp at Standing Rock. Uh, people like um, Faith Spotted Eagle, who runs what, what she calls a, a Kodakicho, which are indigenous women's societies to, to kind of re, uh, to bring back and to, um, you know, re- uh, assert indigenous women's authority within our, within our nations. Um, so this is an ongoing process, you know, it's not just something that that happened and we're trying to fix, you know, with uh, certain things, but it's an ongoing process. 
and often doesn't get reflected to the outside world, right? Um, indigenous women, when we when you just Google Lakota, you know, um, what comes up? It comes with pictures of men, right? And it's a misrepresentation of who we are as Lakota people as well. Thank you, Nick. That was a, a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed that and learned a lot from, a, and it felt very diverse in terms of the topics and the various strata of topics that we covered, but it also felt like it hung together very beautifully as well. And so thank you for sharing your time as a, an educator and as a Lakota man. And really learned a lot there and I value your time and your uh, efforts. Well done getting out of what I presume is some sort of pizza parlor and into a place where you could re-engage with your history and traditions and share them so articulately. Thank you. All right, thanks for having me. Well, that was Nick Estes. I hope you enjoyed it and you feel, uh, well, educated. I hope you feel edified. I hope you feel illuminated, lit up. Let me know what you thought of it, though, on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with hashtag under the skin. If you've not listened to my book Revelation yet on Audible, it's an Audible original, get it. And uh, if, you're not, if you're not subscribed to the side channel where I lead meditations, get that too. And if you haven't listened to Above the Noise, my meditation, which you can listen to for free because it's on this platform, have a meditate. And then you'll appreciate this even more. Remember to sign up to the community on russellbrand.com to get exclusive uh, mailing list content, especially information about my tour. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation have a listen to graham hancock or dear khan why did you choose those ones well graham likes history yeah and nick knows a lot about history and dear khan dear khan knows a lot about different cultures and how they're treated i just wish i knew how your mind works what is that not who would you choose anyway out of uh for nick estes naomi klein why politics politics righteousness environment hmm. at me and uh, <laughs> someone else. What about that Al Gore one? Nah. What's the point? Nah. What's the point it was of it? Propaganda. Too, uh, manic. Yeah. Well, it was manic. Yeah. It only lasts about fifteen seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Now go with Jen's ones and keep looking at my YouTube channels daily for some great videos. We're talking about Bitcoin on there. In fact, we've got a Bitcoin guest coming up soon, so that'll be exciting for you to hear soon, very soon. Right, do we do a goodbye song? Yeah. It's quiet down a bit. The kids have been, they've, they've gone into yeah, another room. they left now that we're finished. I'm starving. Are you hungry? Yeah, I've got what my burger. What is your order for your like? burger? Same, yeah, same thing. Yeah, that's what I go for. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining me on uh, Under the Skin, only from Luminary. Here's a song by a big shout out to Justin Hawkins, our jingle provider. <laughs> All around. <laughs> Did you blow snot out your snout? <laughs> that's not what his life should be now. Jingle provider. <laughs> Dustin Hawkins jingle provider. For our podcast. Well, he's got other jobs. I can't list everything he's doing. Yeah. That's his professional and private business. I'd like to know a bit more about what you're doing. Keep going over to Switzerland. What do you him. mean? Just saying hi. Just saying hi? Yeah. You had text messages? Yeah. Well, send one to Noel Fitzpatrick <laughs> if he likes you. No. I didn't get my poem, poem I didn't get it. Huh? Where is it? It's coming, Mel Fitzpatrick, former Under the Skin guest, aka the super vet, great advocate of animals, friend oh, of uh, the furries. I found out, decided who you should set me up with. Go on. Steve Coogan. <laughs> oh, Jen! <laughs> He's a comic genius. I know. Jen. I fancied him since I was like 15. Jen, I think it's time for you to go out with... <laughs> I want you in a nice same-sex <laughs> no. relationship. I was in a 
Not boring, but boring relationship. For this same-sex relationship is not boring. What? Who is it? She's Why called... same-sex? Because I think it'd be nice and calm for you. She's called Florence. <laughs> no. She lives in my imagination. Calm, calm, so... What are, you, what are you looking for, calm? You can't handle not calm. You're going mad. I can handle not calm. Of course you can't. You have your fun in your BMW, then go home to Florence and relax. <laughs> oh. Have you spoke to Jay Leno yet? No, I'm waiting oh. for Steve Coogan. Good <laughs> 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 right, Thank you for joining us on Under the Skin from Luminary. Cue that music provided by the great Justin. Thank you for listening. Skin goodbye. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Russell.